questions about God have existed from the beginning of time. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were tempted to question God and to question His character, question His, His Word. And people come up with all kinds of philosophical ideas, like, can God make a rock that's too big or too heavy for Him to move? Anyone ever heard that before? I mean, that's people come up, you start snowballing down the line of, of questioning. There was a Greek philosopher named Epicurus who really thought he had this concept of God in checkmate by asking a couple questions. He said, if God is good, but he can't overcome uh, evil, then he's not all-powerful. He's not omnipotent. If God is all-powerful, but allows evil, then he's not good. And he said, if both of those questions are true, why do you call him God? And what Epicurus forgot about was this man named Jesus, who showed us what God was like in the face of a, of a fallen world. Um, I want to ask two kind of questions this morning that are sort of like a catechism, so to speak. If any of you were raised in, in a denominational church, you might have memorized some, some catechisms. And I want to equip you this morning that if someone were to ask you who is God or what is He like, that you would be able to have a simple, concise answer. And the first question is, who is God? Who is God? Our New Testament understanding of who God is, is this. The answer is, God is an eternal relationship between the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. We have a Trinitarian faith. There's one God who's revealed Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's not three gods. There's one God, but three distinct persons of the Godhead. And then the next question is this. So that's who God is. What is God like? Before I give you the answer, let me read a few answers that some young kids gave about what God is like. I thought these were funny. Young Kalen, he's age, age nine. God has big hands because the song says he's got the whole world in his hands. True. <clears throat> Little Lauren, age nine, said, God is very loving. I imagine he's very tall. I love him. <laughs> And then uh, Justin, age 10, he's getting a little warmer to the answer here. He says, yes, God is loving, but he's also a sin hater who is the nicest man in the world. I think he has a beard. He's not that old. He lives in heaven. Jesus is his son. All right. And then you have Ashley. She's age 10. She says, God is like a never-ending story that you want to read again and again. When I hear about him, I want to know more. Although I can't see him, I feel him. He is perfect and pure. I know he has felt pain and has suffered greatly to take away my sins. Then Caleb, who's age 10, I think he already went to divinity school, got his master's degree. Because Caleb says, God is like Jesus, because God is Jesus. God is also like the Holy Spirit, because he is the Holy Spirit too. 
God is also like the Bible because it teaches us about him. So what is God like? This isn't the survey says, this is what scripture says. God is like the life we see revealed in Jesus Christ. If you wonder what God is like, and you read through the four gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the human life of Jesus, you see what God is like. Where do we get this from? Well, the apostle John in his gospel says, no one has seen God at any time. God, the only son who is in the arms of the father, he has explained him. So what he's saying there is Jesus came to clear up this idea of what God is like in his life. Who Jesus is, is what the father's like. Jesus said this to his disciples, the one who has seen me has seen the father. So when you look at the life of Jesus, you know what God is like. It's, that's who he is. He came, Jesus came to take the guesswork out of it. Many people, well, what is God like? Jesus said, look at my life and you'll know what God is like. So today we're almost finished with this summer series called Whosoever Believes. And we're going to look at 1 John, John's first letter that he wrote. He wrote his gospel and he wrote three letters and then he wrote the book of Revelation, which next week we're going to talk about how do we read the book of Revelation because I think people read it very poorly for the most part. But when you learn how to read the book of Revelation, you realize it's, it's pretty amazing. But today we're going to camp on, on 1 John. John's an old man by the time he wrote this. This letter was written in like 90 A.D. So he's writing a letter to the, to the churches. And if you've read any of John's writings, you realize he became the apostle of love. Like love permeated all of John's gospel and his writings and his understanding of Jesus. In a couple of the gospel accounts, when the disciples were first walking with Jesus, there was a group of people who had had opposition to the ministry of Jesus And John and his brother came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, these people are opposing your ministry. Should we call fire down from heaven and kill them, wipe them out? Jesus was like, "Uh, you have no idea what you're saying. You have no idea what spirit you're of. And he nicknamed them the sons of thunder, like they were going to call fire down from heaven. But he morphed. He was transformed in his discipleship to Jesus to move from the guy that wanted to call fire down from heaven to kill people to the apostle of love. In church history, we realize that 11 of the 12 apostles were all martyred for preaching this kingdom of Jesus and this other king. Rome didn't want to hear about another king or kingdom, so they persecuted them. For the very thing we're doing today, they were were actually killed. And there's church history says that they tried to martyr John by putting him in a vat of boiling oil, but God did a miracle and preserved his life. And that much like Daniel in the lion's den or Daniel in the fiery furnace, John was unharmed. And it's funny when you read the end of John's gospel in John 21, um, 
Jesus is restoring the apostle Peter for his three denials. He restores him three times. And then after that happens, again, Peter with his zeal without wisdom, he, he looks around and he says, he points at John and, well, Jesus first tells Peter how he was going to die. He kind of gives a prophetic word that he was going to die a martyr's death. And Peter turns and he points at John and he says, well, what about him? And Jesus says, what business is it of yours of how he's going to die? What if I want him to live forever? And then John clarifies that and he says, of course, Jesus didn't mean he was going to live forever. But you just get a little insight into the apostles by looking at the life of John. So he's writing to the church in general. When you read 1 John, and that's been our goal in this whole series from Romans to Revelation, the letters of the New Testament, is so that you know how to read them better. You know how to interpret it by having some context, by having some highlights from each one of these uh, letters. So as I said, next week we're going to do the book of Revelation, and then beginning September 10th, we're going to do the book of Romans all fall, all the way up till Christmas time. So um, that should be exciting. The letter of 1 John gives a great description on the nature of God. Like, who is God? What is God like? He explains not just his attributes, but the very nature of God. And the first thing John tells us about God is that God is life. God is life. Jesus is the creator of all things, we're told in several passages. He's the creator of all things. He's the creator of everything that has life. He's the creator of the universe. And he's the author of eternal life. He is the author of eternal life. Here's what John says. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Take note that in your Bible word is capitalized. The W is capitalized. He's talking about Jesus as the word of God. And the life was revealed. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, that's Jesus, which was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy, your joy, may be made complete. And then in John's gospel at the, at the very beginning, he echoes what he wrote to the church when he says this, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, the Word of God, the, it's, it's, it's the logos or logos of God in Greek. He's the logic of God, the reality of God, the thought of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. God is life. And the life was the light of mankind. So God is life. God is the God of the living. Second thing John teaches us is this, that God is light. God is life and God is light. He says in 
continues in chapter 1. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's powerful, powerful stuff there. There is no darkness in God. Now, interesting, in uh, John chapter 8, he records the story of the woman caught in the very act of adultery. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law bring this woman who was caught in, in adultery. Why the man didn't get called as well, we don't know, but I, I've always thought that was a little unfair for her. But the woman caught in adultery, they bring her to Jesus, and they're trying to trick him and or trip him up. And they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says we should pick up rocks and stone her to death. And you probably know the story, but Jesus looks at them and he says, any of you that's without sin, fire away. Start throwing those stones. And then it says Jesus knelt down and it, with his finger he began to write something in the dirt, in the dust. And it says one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they all left. Maybe the older guys were like, yeah, I got 60 years of sin in my life, so I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. But Jesus stands up and he looks at the woman caught in adultery and he says, where are those who condemn you? She says, they've all left. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus says this. He says, I'm the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Right after he said, go and sin no more, he says, when you follow me, you will no longer walk in the darkness. That just hit me so hard when I was reading that one time, the way Jesus is telling us, we're all caught in some kind of sin. We've all made mistakes. We all have past that we're not proud of. Jesus says, go and sin no more and follow me and you will walk in the light. You will never walk in the darkness. Darkness, when it's pitch black, can be kind of a scary moment, right? When you're, it just can't even see your hand in front of your face. And as I was thinking about this, I uh, flashed back to when our kids were really little, like really small. We went to Colorado Springs and went to the, the Cave of the Winds. And there, anybody done that before? And you go and they shut the lights off and you can no longer see the stalactites and stalagmites and all the other mites. And it's just pitch black. And they did that. And, and, and Chandler, I have her permission to tell you this story. When she, she was you know, a little small, they turned the lights out. It's pitch black. She goes, Dad, I farted. <laughs> That's why they call it Cave of the Winds, right? <laughs> That's what I told her. And I thought of this other, sorry if it's TMI, but um, back when they first created those um, motion uh, sensor light switches, I was in the restroom, and uh, I guess I was in too long, 
and the, the lights went out. And my OCD said, did I just go blind? Like, that's my third, first thought, I just went blind. I was like, no, you didn't go blind. And I realized what had happened. So in my, my wisdom, I grabbed a thing of toilet paper, chucked it across the room, pff, lights came back on, all good from there. But in all seriousness, darkness, darkness from a spiritual point of view, darkness from how Jesus describes it, really started in the garden. Darkness is the, the fallen spiritual world, obviously, and evil. But the New Testament talks a lot about the darkness of our minds, having darkness in our minds. What is that? Well, darkness is when the lights aren't on. Darkness happened in the garden when the serpent got Adam and Eve to question God's word and to question his character and to basically say, God's disinterested in you. He's out there in heaven and he doesn't really care about you. If that's your understanding of God, that's what the Bible calls walking in darkness. Jesus is the light of the world to reveal to us and all of humanity that God is not distant and that God extremely cares for you and wants relationship with you. Jesus came to dispel the darkness. The darkness that happened in the garden has been perpetuated ever since. But Jesus came to be the light of the world. So God is life, God is light, and then thirdly, God is love. God is love. Life, light, and love. John says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. God is not like love. Love is not God. The very essence and nature of God is love. Love is others-centered, right? Self-denial. God is perfect in his love, his very nature. Jesus talked about this amazing God of love when he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. The word love in English is, is thrown around pretty loosely. And it's because English isn't a very descriptive language. Like We have one word for love. In other languages, there's more descriptive, especially like Greek. But in, in English, I can say that I love ice cream or that I love the Rockies, which many of you hate, but that hurts me deeply as your pastor. <laughs> two years, they'll be good. Trust me, you go back to the YouTube two years from now and you'll remember I said that. I can say I love my wife, and I can say I love God, and those are all different descriptions of what love really means. So how do we, if God is love, what is he like? 
I love that the Apostle Paul took the time in his letter to the Corinthians, spent a whole chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 talking about uh, love and what it is and what it does. He says that I, if, if I give myself as a martyr, but I don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. He says, if I could speak in the tongues of angels and heavenly languages, but I have not love, I'm just pots and pans banging together. But then he describes what love is. And so when we talk about God being love, we're going to take the Apostle Paul's definition of love, and we're going to apply that to God, the God of love. Look at this with me. Love, or God, he's patient, and he's kind. Love, or the God of love, is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. The God of love does not demand his own way. The God of love is not irritable. And God, the God of love, keeps no records of being wrong. The God of love does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love, or God, never gives up never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. The God of love will last forever. How many know that's good news? We could just, boom, mic drop, walk out of here and realize we serve and know a loving God. Many people have this concept that God's irritable all the time. He's a joyful God. He's not in a bad mood. God knows how everything's going to work out from the beginning to the end. He's on the job, and he's, He is with us. God is life, God is light, and God is love. Then John gets real practical in this epistle where he basically asks this question that, that I'm going to ask. How can I know if I'm walking in life, light, and love of God? How can I know that? How can you and I kind of measure our lives? Am I walking in his life? Am I I trusting him for eternal life? Am I walking in the light of Jesus, who's the light of the world? Am I walking in love? Am I a loving person? Three questions John asks that make this very applicable for each one of them. The first one is, am I walking with the right Jesus? Am I walking with the right Jesus? the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus who revealed the Father to us. The, one of the big things that was going on when John wrote this, his letters was a heresy called Gnosticism, the Gnostics. They, that was an ancient philosophy of Greek culture that believed that everything that was in the natural world, your flesh, your skin, your bones, animals, everything that you could touch with your senses was evil, and that everything that you couldn't see in the spiritual world, that that was what was good. And so the Gnostics taught there, there's no way that, that Jesus came in real flesh and blood because real flesh and blood is, is evil. So he was more of a phantom or a hologram or whatever, a figment of the imagination. And they were perpetuating this idea throughout the churches. And John is he's calling them to the carpet that no, Jesus came in, in humanity just like you and I. 
That's the incarnation. He says this, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and now it is already in the world. Often in our Western mindset, we think the Antichrist is just this political figure in the end times. John is saying 2,000 years ago, the Antichrist is someone who denies Jesus, who denies that Jesus really came. That's an Antichrist spirit. And as I said earlier, Jesus is what God is like. And so we as people have this temptation to create a Jesus in our own image, a Jesus who fits our agenda. And that was all over the lives of the disciples pre death and resurrection of Jesus, or that fits our ideology, right? Ideology is what you believe about politics and social issues. And so if we try to make Jesus conform to that, I remember many years ago, I was on staff at Faith Bible Chapel and big church. And there was a small Baptist church next door to ours. And I can't remember the name of the church, but the the people who are from Wichita, Kansas, that protest soldiers. They're very vulgar and not a very good representation at all of the real Jesus. Do you guys know I'm talking about the church? I don't know if they still exist or not. Say it. Yes. Westboro Baptist. Um, There was a bunch of people from that church, and they were picketing, and then they realized, oh, there's a huge church next door. We'll forget the smaller church. We'll get more, more people to talk to. And I walked out there, and I walked up to the people protesting. I said, what are you doing? That's kind of my nature. I said, what are you guys doing? And they said, uh, does your pastor preach that God loves everybody? Maybe they didn't have southern accents, but it <laughs> seems to fit. Does your pastor preach that God loves everybody? And I said, well, Jesus said God loves everybody in the New Testament. So yes, we, he preaches that. Well, you're a, this is a heretical church, blah, 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 blah. God hates sinners. God hates people. And um, this, guy, this guy's wife was there, and I said, do you know that when you die, you're going to go to heaven? And she said, no. She said, I'm not sure if I'm part of the elect. I'm not, I have to persevere to the end, and then I'll be saved. No assurance at all about the love of God or going to heaven. I said, ma'am, that's sad. I said, when you turn to the real Jesus Christ, you can have assurance of his love. And her husband came over to me, and she goes, don't talk to that dumb donkey with ears. Called me, you know, the other word, but that dumb donkey with ears. And I was like, okay, dude, like... You don't know Jesus. You don't know the real Jesus. You're following a different Jesus whom you've created in your own likeness that hates people, who's angry, and is just condemning, judging, etc. 
That's not Jesus. Who are the people that flocked to Jesus in the Gospels? Broken people like myself, sinners, prostitutes, outcasts of society. The people Jesus was hardest on were the people who thought they had it all figured out in their religious point of view. He was hard on them. But to to everybody, they flocked to him. They wanted to know him. And he was good to them. So am I walking with the right Jesus, and then am I walking in the truth? Am I walking in the truth? Very important. 1 John 4, 6. We are from God. The one who knows God listens to us. The one who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You ever asked the question to yourself or had the question asked to you, like, who's right when it comes to this whole God question? Who's right? I've had people ask me that. Like, who's got the right doctrine? What's the right church? Do they got it all figured out? If you go to a church where they, they got it all figured out, you're probably in the wrong church <laughs> because we are the imperfect and we're following Jesus. And we, are, we don't have it all figured out. But we know the one who does. His name is Jesus. He has it figured out. We're with him. He's the light of the world. And then when it comes to religions, people say, well, how do you know your religion is the right one? My answer is always this. Like, I didn't make it up. Christians didn't make it up. The one whom we follow said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Him. So if you got a problem with the ex- that exclusive uh, Savior, the Him being the exclusive Savior and Lord, you got a problem with Jesus, not me or a church or Christianity. He's the one who said it. But thankfully, our exclusive Savior said, come one, come all. He's the all-inclusive. Come to me, He said. Love that about Jesus. Jesus is the truth. He is reality. He is the truth. And when you walk with Jesus, when you put into practice what he says to do, you're walking in truth. That's what John means here. You're walking in the, with the real Jesus and walking in his truth. A lie is the exact opposite of what is true. And what is one of the devil's descriptions of the devil, he's the father of lies, Jesus said. He can't tell the truth. Lying is his very nature. And that's what he wants to do to each one of us is to get us to not walk in the truth, but to walk in his perpetuated lies about ourselves and about God. That you're not loved and God can't be trusted. And that's when we have to say, Jesus, I look at you and I see the father. You're the face of God. You're the smile of God upon my life. I'm with you. That's what all of us need to do. Our society has taken ideology, which is, again, what do I believe about politics and social issues, and they've taken their, their ideology, shapes their theology. Theology is what do I believe about God? Atheists have a theology. Everybody has a theology, right? If you don't believe in God, you still have a theology that, that he doesn't exist, We can never let our ideology shape our theology, our understanding of God in the person of Christ. 
Our theology should shape your ideology. What do you believe about politics and social issues? Let it start with Jesus. Let let it start with the Word of God and what he, He says. And I would say this, am I walking in truth? Seek Jesus in every relationship in your life. Let Him be preeminent. Seek Him about every decision that you have to make in your life. Put Him in the center of that. You will walk in the truth. And the last question is this, am I walking in love? Am I walking in love? He says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. The invisibility of God has created problems over the the course of time, right? Well, where is your God? I can't see him. He's not tangible. And in the Old Testament, God would do miracles like parting the Red Sea or the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal when when God sent fire to lick up the water (laughs) from the ground. And it was miracles. So God made himself visible through that. Then ultimately makes himself visible in the person of Jesus, right? Jesus walked the earth. We have historic factual biographies of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but Jesus went back to heaven after his resurrection. So where's your Jesus? Where's your God? I don't see him. What John is saying here in what I just read to you is that when we love one another, we make God visible to the world around us. When we love unlovable people, when we forgive the unforgivable in somebody else, when we are patient and we're kind. We don't keep records of wrongs with people. God's love is made visible. And, and he says that in our midst. When we love one another and we love our neighbor as ourself, God is made tangible to a world who has a very difficult time seeing him. Love manifests and reveals God. So in our discipleship to Jesus, in walking in love, here's what we have to question that we have to ask in every circumstance and in every relationship is this. What does love require of me? What does love require of me regarding that person who hurt me, offended me? What does love require of me in my marriage? in circumstances, on the job, whatever it is, you wake up and say, Lord, I want this to be first and foremost on my mind. What does love require of me? Because you're the God of love. You are the God who is love. If you ask that question and then you do what love requires of you, it could mean forgiving, pursuing peace, prayer. I mean, it it can be, sometimes we're called to speak the truth in love, right? Love doesn't affirm destructive behavior. Love confronts destructive behavior. So it doesn't mean we're silent or anything like that. It just means we do it in a loving manner, in patience, kindness, and all the things that are described what love is. Would you stand with me?
We're going to respond to God in a song and declare who He is as Christy was talking about God's throne has already been established. He is who He is. God is life. He's the light of the world and He is love. And I know as I was going through this, there are some areas that I was convicted in, in my own life and maybe God has put something on your heart this morning this is an opportunity to worship to praise and to reflect and to bring everything back to God if you've never put your faith in Jesus today's the day don't put it off putting your faith in Jesus is agreeing with him that he is the savior and that he is the Lord of all. That's what faith really boils down to. I agree with you. We don't make him Savior. We don't make him Lord. That's who he is. We agree with him. If you haven't done that, do that right now. And as we sing this song, let God stir up the passion in your heart for him who is life, eternal life. He's the light of the world, and he's love.
You sent the darkness running out of an empty grave. Seated alone in glory, enthroned on the highest praise. Oh, you sent the darkness running out of an empty grave. Seated alone in glory, thrown on the highest praise. Oh, you sent the darkness running out of an empty grave. Now seated alone in glory, thrown on the highest praise. You reign above it all. You reign above it all. Father, as we go from here today, we trust you to reign above it all. Reign over our relationships, reign over our thoughts, reign over our words, our actions. And may we walk with you who is the true God of love. Thank you for your precious promises that are yes and amen in Jesus. God, I pray for people who have burdens this morning of health issues, fears. God, you're the healer. Bring your healing, bring your grace and your compassion. God, on strained marriages, I pray for your healing and health, that, that husband and wife would be others-centered. There'd be forgiveness where that needs to be. God, I pray for families in need. You are our provider in every way. God, I pray for friendships that are stressed and strained, that you bring healing there. God, that we would walk truly in your life, in your light, and in your love. In Jesus' name, amen.